This is an audio sermon recorded at the Church of Christ at Johnson Mill in Fayetteville, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth according to the New Testament. Come worship with us Sunday mornings at 1030 at 3801 Johnson Mill Boulevard. 2 Kings chapter 20. I want to read verses 1 through 3. 2 Kings 20, 1 through 3. The Bible says that in those days was Hezekiah sick unto death. And the prophet Isaiah the son of Amoz came to him and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. Then he turned his face to the wall and prayed unto the Lord, saying, I beseech thee, O Lord, remember now how I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart, and have done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. We have a man here that's told to set his house in order that he will soon die and not live. And I want you to notice his reaction. It's pretty typical, really, of human beings. He turned his face to the wall. He prayed unto the Lord and he cried. He beseeched God. He asked God to remember his life and what he had done. And uh, this is the usual reaction. In the case of Hezekiah, he had been a great king. He had been righteous. He had ruled well over God's people. He had served God faithfully. But it seems like uh, when people come down to the end of life and when uh, we're finally confronted with the imminent possibility of death, most people turn to God like He did, whether they've served God or not. I know I have baptized through the years several people who have turned to God at the very last hour when it looked like their days would be short. Many times they'll turn to God and they'll call for help. They may have rejected the gospel a good part of their life, but it seems like when we're confronted with death, we turn to God, and that's a pretty normal reaction. Now, you and I were taught by the Bible very plainly are going to die. We have an appointment with it, and we're not going to put it off. Hebrews 9 and 27, there on the inside, the Bible says, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. So we have an appointment with death, and we're not going to reschedule that appointment with God. We're not going to tell the Lord when that hour comes, now Lord, I'm I'm tied up right now. I just can't die right now. You're going to have to wait a little while. We're not going to move this appointment. Sometimes we'll move a doctor's appointment or a dental appointment or a business appointment, and we'll just tell somebody, well, I just can't make it. Something's come up, but we'll make this appointment. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment, and we'll keep that appointment. In essence, God has said to you and me, Set your house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. What I want us to do this morning is to suppose that a message comes to us, that we're told to get everything in order, that we're soon going to die and not live. And I wonder what your reaction would be, what would mine be, what would we do, what would, what would we not do? What would we need to do? Those are things I want to consider with us today, and we're going to look at that under those three categories. I want to talk about, first of all, what some people would need to do, what they would need to do if God said set everything in order. And then I want to talk, secondly, about some things that we would not do. There are just things we wouldn't do if we were told to set everything in order, that we would soon die. And number three, I want to talk about some things you and I would do absolutely would. First of all, let's consider what some people would need to do if God told them to set everything in order, 
There are some people that would need to believe in Jesus. And I know that sounds strange today. Everybody here in this country has heard of Jesus. Surely they have. We hear His name everywhere. I mean, even among people that will not serve Him, that will not follow Him, people know about Jesus. But I wonder how many of those that know about Jesus really believe in Jesus. It's one thing to know about Him. It's another thing to believe in Him and to serve Him. <clears throat> and we need to serve Him. In, in John 3 and 18, the Bible says, He that believeth on Him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. People that don't believe in Jesus are under condemnation right now. We might say they're on death row. Folks that do not believe in Jesus right now are condemned. They're already under condemnation. He that believeth on Him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Jesus taught us why it's important for us to believe in Him. In John chapter 8 and verse 24, Christ said this to the Jews, I said therefore unto you, that ye shall die in your sins. For if ye believe not that I am He, ye shall die in your sins. Now why do, we, why do we want to avoid dying in sin? Well that's verse 21 of John 8. Jesus said, I go my way and ye shall seek me, and shall die in your sins. Whither I go, you cannot come. So if we wait around and die in sin, we can't go where Jesus is. And if we don't believe in Him, we're going to die in sin. And if we die in sin, then where He's at, we'll never be. That's a good reason, isn't it? Now we can't believe in Jesus without, without evidence. If, uh, if you folks were sitting on a jury this morning, and let's just say I was an attorney, and I wanted you to believe in the guilt or the innocence of my client, I would present evidence. I would present testimony. You would weigh that. You would think about it. You'd meditate about it. You would go in a separate place and deliberate about it. And then you'd reach a conclusion or you'd reach a belief. But your belief would be based upon the evidence and the testimony you heard. And God understands that we've got to have evidence in order to believe in Jesus. The Bible tells us in Romans 10 and 17, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And God in His Word has piled evidence mountain high, sufficient to convince anyone of who Jesus is. All we have to do is go look at the evidence. When we read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and other scriptures about Christ, we're given a picture about Him. We're given evidence about who He is. And as you study Jesus' life, it's a fascinating life. There's, there's never been a life lived like this. There's never been a person like Jesus. He is the most unique individual that's ever walked this earth. Surely we'd have to admit that if we've even studied anything at all about His life. There's been no one like Him. And Jesus did a lot of miracles. Miracles designed to give us faith and convince us of who He is. In John 20, verse 30 and 31, the Bible says, Many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through His name. Why are these written? They're written so that you can believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's why they're written. And when you study the life of Jesus, then you, you see that Jesus lived like only God could live. There's never been a human being live like Jesus did. Never been a life like that. 
You read the Bible, you see that Jesus loved like only God could love. Ain't nobody loved like Jesus and God, see. When you study Christ, you, you see that He spoke like only God could speak. You remember when the Lord would, would finish His teaching, the Bible would say, they were astonished at His doctrine, for He taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. There was a ring of authority to everything Jesus said. And when Jesus spoke, it was different than hearing the rabbis or hearing the teachers of that day. Nobody had ever spoken like this man. I remember one occasion when Jesus' enemies sent soldiers out to arrest him. And the soldiers came back after they listened to Christ speak. And they asked, uh, they asked the soldiers, where is he? And they said to the people that sent them, never a man spake as this man. We've never heard anything like this man. They couldn't even arrest Jesus. His speech was so different, see. And when you look at Jesus' life, you see that He wrought mighty miracles such as only God would be able to do. So He lived, and He loved, and He spoke, and He worked miracles like only God could possibly do. And that's why people need to look at the life of Jesus. There is evidence in here sufficient to convince anyone of who He is. And if God told some people, many people in fact, to set their house in order that they would soon die, they need to investigate the Word of God and come to a faith in Jesus Christ. Number two, there would be some people that would need to obey the gospel. Obey the gospel. And there's a, uh, the Bible speaks of obeying. I, there was a time I, I never had heard the term obey the gospel. The churches that I was raised up in as a boy, that was a foreign concept to me. And I remember attending a congregation of the Church of Christ one time, and the preacher spoke about obeying the truth. He spoke about obeying the gospel. And that was a strange concept to me, but then when I read the Bible more, I saw it was a biblical concept. In Romans 10 and 16, Paul there quotes from Isaiah, he says, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So he talks about obeying the gospel there. And there are reasons why we need to obey the gospel. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7 to 9, Paul said unto you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, listen, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. He will take vengeance on people when he comes people who know not God and that do not obey the gospel. So some people need to obey the gospel. Now what is the gospel? What is the gospel? 1 Corinthians 15 verse 1 to 4, Paul said, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. The Gospel then, Paul said, is that Christ died for our sins, that He was buried, and that He rose the third day. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Now if that's the Gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection, and we're to obey the Gospel, how in the world do we obey the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? And the answer is we do that in baptism. 
In baptism, we die to sin. In baptism, we are buried with Jesus. In baptism, we rise with Christ to walk in newness of life. And Paul described this in Romans 6 at verse 3, when he said, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. So in baptism we are baptized into Christ's death. We die with Jesus. We are buried with Him, and then we are raised to walk in newness of life. There is a death, burial, and resurrection, and that's how we obey the gospel. It's done in baptism. And if God said, set your house in order, their people need to be baptized. They need to be baptized for the remission of their sins. They need to die to sin. They need to be buried with Jesus. The old body of their sin needs to be destroyed, and they need to be raised up with Him to walk in newness of life. Number three, if, if the Lord said, set your house in, in order, there are some people that would just need to continue to be faithful. These are faithful Christians. These are, are people that are living a faithful life right now. And in the latter part of Revelation 2 and 10, the Bible says to us, Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee the crown of life. Now that's a misunderstood passage sometimes. It's true that you and I need to be faithful to the day we die, but that's not what this verse teaches. This verse teaches, Be faithful even to the point of dying, even to the point of giving your life for the Lord. In other words, if you're called upon, die for Jesus. That's the import of the verse. Be thou faithful unto death. Be so faithful you would die for Jesus. And Christ said, I'll give you a crown of life. And we're to live that kind of life till the day we die. If somebody threatened us and suggested or commanded that we deny our Savior, or else they would take our life, we need to give our life right there without hesitation. And that's, that's the kind of obedience that Jesus demands. That we love Him enough to die for Him. He loved us enough to die for us. And He expects no less out of you and I. Just be faithful. 1 Corinthians 15 and 58, Paul said, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be you steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Just be faithful. Number four, if, if the Lord said, set your house in order, you'll die and, and not live, there are some people that are Christians that need to repent. There are people that have obeyed the Lord in baptism. They have started out in a walk with the Lord. They have become children of God, but they have not been faithful to the Lord. They have not walked with Him. They have been dragged back into the world. They have led evil associations or, or other such things, the allurement of the world and lust of the flesh and eyes. Take them away from their walk with Christ. And these people need to repent and seek God's forgiveness. There are a lot of Christians, unfortunately, that are like this. And we're given a remedy about what to do if we are a Christian and we have sinned, how to get back right with the Lord. And that's found in Acts chapter 8 at verse 20. There was a man named Simon who had been a sorcerer and 
He had bewitched the people down in Samaria. But Philip came preaching, preached Jesus. And Simon had obeyed the Lord in baptism, and he, he began to follow Philip around and watch Philip do miracles. But then the apostles came down from Jerusalem uh, and, and came to impart miraculous gifts by the laying on of their hands. Now Simon had been a con artist. He had been a sorcerer that had extorted money out of the people in Samaria, making them think that he had great power when he didn't. And now here's Peter and John coming down, two apostles, and they've literally got the ability to do miracles and, and to impart that ability to others. And Simon, I'm, I'm sure he sees, he sees money everywhere. And he's thinking, if I can just get this power, wow, I'll be able to do this and people will have to come to me to get these gifts. See, He tries to buy that power. Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, and he offered them money, saying, Give me this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, now watch verse 20 in what Peter said. Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot nor part in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Here's what he's told to do. Repent therefore of this thy wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee, for I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Then answered Simon and said, Pray ye to the Lord for me, that none of these things which ye have spoken come upon me. Now look at his fallen state. Peter says, Your money's going to perish with you. This man's going to perish. He tells him to repent of his wickedness, that his heart is not right in the sight of God. To repent therefore of this thy wickedness, and pray God that perhaps the thought of his heart would be forgiven. He's told to repent and to pray. If you're in sin this morning, that's what you need to do as a Christian. Repent of what you're doing. Turn from it. And then ask God to forgive you of those sins, and He'll do that. And if God said, set thine house in order, there's a lot of Christians that would need to do this very thing. So here's four things we've looked at now that some would need to do if they were told they would soon die. Some need to believe in Jesus. Some need to obey the gospel. Some would just need to be faithful. And others that are unfaithful Christians would need to repent and pray. Now let's look for a moment at some things that you and I would not do. You know, if we were told we were soon going to die, there are just things we wouldn't do. There's things you wouldn't want to be found guilty of. There's things that, that uh, people just couldn't get you to do by any means. Because knowing they're wrong, you just wouldn't want to do them because death's coming on very soon. And let's look at a few of those. One of those would be there would be no unnecessary hoarding of goods for a so-called rainy day. And I'm not talking about being frugal. I'm not talking about being thrifty. I'm not talking about laying aside a little bit of money for your future, for the needs of your children or your family, to have a little nest egg, as we call it, some, some security and the ability to help yourself if times should get tough or if you need to help others. Nothing wrong with that. I'm talking about coveting things of this world. Just, just keep piling up treasures. There, there are people that just keep making money and, and they can't make enough. They can't lay aside enough. And they're just so greedy over it that it consumes them. And they're very stingy with it. 
And it's called covetousness. And Jesus warned about it. He, he gives a parable I want you to notice about uh, in Luke, uh, Luke 12 with me. Verse 15, He said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not of the abundance of the things which he possesseth. Life is not found, happiness is not found in the abundance of what we have. I mean, you can have a million dollars, you can have five million or ten million, and that's not necessarily going to make you happy, and that's not where happiness is found. That's not what life's about. Some of the most miserable people on this earth are very wealthy people because their money won't buy them happiness. Their life is a shamble. Their home is a wreck. Their marriage is awful. They have no relationship with their children. They're at odds with people. They've made enemies. Their life is just a mess. They're not happy. And they run from one pleasure to another trying to find satisfaction and they never find it because it's not found in what we have. True peace of mind and happiness is never found in in possessions and in pleasures and things like this. And Jesus said, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not of the abundance of the things which he possesseth. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will bestow all my fruits and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself, and is not rich toward God. So he pictures this farmer, and, and uh, his ground just brought forth plentifully. He had abundance of crops, so much so that when he harvested, he just filled his barns right up. The barns were just packed. He couldn't get any more in them. Yet he still had plenty out here in his fields. He could have called the widows in that community. He could have called the poor. He could have said to them, look, I have my barns filled. I have plenty. I have abundance. I'm in very good shape, and yet my, my fields still have a great amount of crops in them. Why don't you go glean my fields and take what you need and distribute to others that, that might be in need? And tell the poor around here to just come to my field and help themselves. I have plenty, and you can have all of this. He wasn't willing to do that. Rather than give any of that away, he tore down the barns, or was planning to tear down the barns that he had, and build greater ones, so that he could keep every last thing he'd grown in that field as his. And that pitiful? He was willing to do that. God said, you're a fool. This night your soul's going to be required of you. You're going to die. And then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? Who's going to get your crops out here then? Well, you're gone. See. You're not going to have them anymore. That's what a lot of people do. They, they lay stuff back and they leave a fairly vast amount for other people when they die, when they could have used it in the cause of the Lord. And then a lot of times their heirs will come along and just waste whatever they've left them, see. 
just waste it or else they'll hoard it too. They'll hold on and try to build to it. And it becomes a snare and a stumbling block to them. And so the Lord warns us about covetousness. We need to be aware of this. And what I'm telling you is if we were told to set our house in order, we wouldn't have this problem. We would find people in, in need about us and if we had the ability from the Lord to help them, we would help them and open up our hearts to those that are about us. And we ought to do that anyway. Number two, we would not try to serve two masters. If we were told to set our house in order, we wouldn't try to serve two masters because that's impossible. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, no man can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You know, there are people that have just enough religion to be miserable. People have just enough religion to be miserable. What do I mean, what do I mean by that statement? There are some people in the church that, that are miserable. They have enough religion that they're miserable. They, they've got enough religion they can't get out here and run with the world and do everything they want to do in the world because they've got a little bit too much knowledge of God's Word. On the other hand, there's enough of the world in them that they can't give themselves completely over to the Lord and serve Him. And so they try to give God a divided heart. They try to give a little bit here to God and a little bit to the world or maybe a lot to the world and a little to God. And they're trying to serve two masters. Jesus said you can't do that. One of those masters is really going to win out, isn't it? And you'll see that sometimes in folks' church attendance and other things. You see who their real love is. When they don't care to be at church, when they'd just soon be asleep in bed, watching television, working at the lake, doing any number of things, you can see the divided nature of their heart. They'll come to church when it's convenient, if they feel like it, if they want to. But that's not really where their priorities lie, is it? And they're trying to just get by on a minimum, minimum of service, give God a few scraps out of their life in a few moments. And the rest of their life they'll live it however they want to, even if it's contrary to God's will. And what I'm saying to us is, if we were told to set everything in order, we wouldn't try that. We would want our service to be completely to God, and that's what the Bible teaches in Matthew 6 and 33. Jesus said, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. God will supply our needs if we'll put Him first. So many people will not put Him first. And then they run into needs and they wonder, well, why am I, why am I in need? Why is it like this? See? And uh, we would not do that if we were told to set everything in order. Number three, we would not put off for tomorrow the things that we ought to be doing today. If we were told we would soon die, we wouldn't keep putting things off. How much, how much do we put off? How many good intentions do we have? Well, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, and we never quite get around to it, do we? Sometimes we may be in town or we might be near a rest home and we'll say, you know, I need to drop in over here and see so-and-so, but uh, if I do that, let's see, that's going to take 30, 45 minutes and it's going to cost me quite a bit of time and there's a little bit of expense to it and, and I'll catch that some other time. And that's what we tell ourselves sometimes. So we don't see the sick person, the, the shut-in or or someone, and, and uh, 
we lose that opportunity. We put it off for another day. Young people, young people need to think about their service to God right now when they're young. And I'm looking at some young people today. Ecclesiastes 12 and 1 says this, Remember now thy Creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. If you'll go on to read Ecclesiastes 12, it'll give you a picture of old age. It's not a real good picture. <laughs> read it sometime. Talks about the grinders ceasing because they're few. Talks about your teeth coming out and everything. Talks about uh, a lot of problems that we have. The keepers of the house tremble, it says. Talks about our knees and how our legs get weak as we get older. And it begins to describe what the body is going to go through in the process of aging. And uh, there will be days come by, days will come for all of us if we live long enough that we'll say, I don't have any pleasure in them. I know people that wake up, so they, they, can't, uh, they can't stay asleep and they got to get up with what we call the chickens because they can't sleep, and then uh, at night when they go to bed, well, they, they, they can't sleep, or they'll sleep during the day. Everything's all backwards. And uh, we have opportunities right now. The Bible says for the young people to remember your Creator while you're young. And I would just say to our young people here today, if you'll put God in your life right now, and I mean really put Him in your life and put Him first, you're going to have a lot better life because you young people right now that are here have some great decisions that are coming up. Some of you are going to choose a career. All of you probably. What are you going to do with your life? What's your occupation going to be? Are you, are you going to be educated and trained well enough to make yourself a decent living? Right now you've got an opportunity to, to do that, to get some training and to develop a skill and things like this. And, and educate yourself to where you'll be able to provide for your family and, and for your needs. You're going to pick a marriage partner probably a lot sooner than what you think. And a lot of people make a great mistake when they do that because they don't factor God into their thinking. They go out here and get somebody that's popular. Maybe he's the star running back on the football team or maybe it's a beautiful cheerleader. And we look at physical beauty and we look at things like this and popularity. And people aren't thinking about well, what kind of a mate is this going to be? Are they going to be kind to me? Are they going to love me? Are they going to put me first in their life, you know, and, and uh, where I need to be in regard to the home? Are they going to have a good set of morals? How are they going to raise and train my children? What kind of companion are they going to be? Will I have conversation with them? Will I have good companionship? What are they going to be like as a mate? Are they going to treat me good? Will they be faithful to me? There's so many things that young people need to consider before they ever think about marriage. And what I would tell you young people today is if you'll put God in your life right now and not put off things till later, start serving Him sincerely right now, out of your desire to please Him, you'll pick a better partner, you'll pick a better occupation, You'll make better decisions with your life. You'll be happier. You'll cause yourself a lot less heartache. And I want to say something else to the kids because I've lived long enough to see this. And maybe even to the young couples that are here. If you don't pick a good companion and you don't raise good children, 
if you don't raise good kids right now, not only are your kids going to be little stinkers, so are your grandkids. That's what's going to happen to you. You're going to get older at a time when you'd love to have the grandchildren over. And because you didn't raise your kids right, they're not going to raise your grandkids right. And those grandkids are going to be rebellious. They're going to be little stinks, as we'd call them. They're going to give you trouble and problems. When they drop them off to you, they're not going to obey you. And they're going to make your life miserable. And I've watched many grandparents have so much grief and heartache over their grandchildren. Grandchildren that get on drugs or turn to alcohol or get involved in crime or, or any number of things that are just rebellious, that won't work, that are lazy, that just, just have all kinds of problems. And if we don't raise these kids right right now, our kids are not going to raise their kids right, and they're going to be dumped on us in our older years when our life could be kind of nice and pleasant. It won't be. But you see, the fault is going to lie with you right now on who you pick for a mate and how you raise your kids. There's so many factors right now, and you've got a little narrow window right now to get a lot of this done. Don't put that off thinking, well, I'll... I'll think about that some other time. Start serving the Lord now. In James 4.17, the Bible says, Therefore to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. When we know what we ought to be doing, we ought to do it, and not put it off. Number four, we would not remain indefinitely undecided upon religion. There are a lot of people today that talk about how they want to be saved. And when you talk to them about their soul salvation, they'll say, well, you know, I'm, I'm looking this over. I'm studying. I'm thinking on things. But, so just give me some time. I, you know, I'm, I'm really looking at it. I do this all the time in my travels. I'll go hold a meeting somewhere. I'll run across uh, somebody, and I'll, I'll talk to them about their soul. And they'll say, well, Pat, I'm looking into that right now. I'm studying about it. I'm thinking about it. You know, I really am, and when I, when I get this figured out, I'll do this. I'll do it pretty quick. Maybe it's three, four, five years later, I go back and hold another meeting. There's that same person, and they've never obeyed the gospel yet. You see, they weren't serious about it. But the point is that if we're told to set our house in order, we don't have a whole lot of time. And we wouldn't remain just undecided about our religion. We would, we would know what church we should be a part of. We would know how to worship truly. We would know the plan of salvation. And if a person wants to be saved, how long does that take to know that? Not very long. I want you to look at Acts 16, verse 25. We have here the, the jailer at Philippi. Paul and Silas have been beaten and thrown into prison, and he's put them into a, an inner prison and put their feet in stocks. This jailer is a heathen. He's never heard about Jesus so far as we know. And then we read in Acts 16, 25, that at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. Immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, waking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we're all here. 
Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now there's the question. What must I do to be saved? And they said unto him, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. So they tell him to believe in Jesus. The problem is he can't believe in Jesus because he's never heard the Word of God preached. So look at verse 32. They spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. They preached to him about Jesus. Now watch this. He took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all his straightway. What hour of the night was that? Look at verse 25 again. At midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises. See, it's a midnight hour. The earthquake comes and shakes the prison. The jailer is awakened out of his sleep. He sees the prison doors open. He's about to kill himself. Paul stops him. And uh, he said, Do yourself no harm. We're here. And so he brought Paul and Silas out and he asked them what to do to be saved. It's still the midnight hour. They tell him to believe on Jesus. He can't. So they preach unto him the word of the Lord and to all that's in his house. And he takes them the same hour of the night, cleans their wombs, washes their stripes, and is baptized in all his. In one hour, one hour this man became a Christian. He was baptized the same hour of the night, that midnight hour between 12 and 1. How much Bible do you think he knew, folks? Did he know about the organization of the Lord's church, elders and deacons? Did he know their qualifications? I wonder if he knew anything about communion. I doubt if they even brought up the Lord's Supper. Doctrine after doctrine, he knows nothing about, see. But he knew enough to believe in Jesus Christ and repent of his sins and to obey the Lord in baptism, and he did that in one hour. And so, if we were told to set our house in order, there are some people that would not remain undecided about religion. We'd know. We'd know. We would search the Bible. In Acts 17, 11, we read of the Jews there in the city of Berea that these were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the Word with all readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures daily whether these things were so. If you're here today and you're wondering, well, what do I need to do to be saved? You can read the story of the jailer and figure out that you need to believe in Jesus Christ, repent of your sins, and be baptized. And so we would not remain indefinitely undecided on religion. Now here's some things that I've just mentioned to you, things that we would not do. There would be no unnecessary hoarding of things for a rainy day. We wouldn't try to serve two masters. We wouldn't put off for tomorrow things that we should do today. We would not remain indefinitely undecided upon religion. And now finally, let's talk about some things that you and I would do. What would we do? If God said, set your house in order, you're going to die very soon, what would we do? And I would tell you we would do whatever it takes. One of the first things I believe we would do, folks, is we would look at our own lives. We would examine ourselves. 2 Corinthians 13 and 5, the Bible says, examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, 
except you be reprobates. We would examine ourselves. Now, we're real good at examining others. You know what? If y'all will look at my life for a while, if you'll study me very carefully, you're going to find a lot of flaws. If I looked at your life for a while, I could probably figure out a few things that might be wrong with you. We're real good at seeing faults in other people. And instead of confessing our faults, we confess each other's faults. See, we don't confess our faults. The Bible says examine yourselves, and I think we'd do that. I've had people call me that uh, had just gotten word that they didn't have very long to live, and they were, you could tell they were really examining things. They'd ask me about certain doctrines. Pat, are we, are we right on this? Are you sure we've been right here? They wanted to be so correct on their doctrine and on their practice because life was short, see. And they wanted, they were really making a self-examination is what they were doing. Examining everything. And I think we would look back on our lives if they were soon to come to an end with a, probably a lot of sorrow and, and regret because we would see wasted opportunities. I can see them in mind, can you? People talk to me sometimes about memorizing Scripture, and they'll say, Pat, you've memorized quite a bit of Scripture. I usually tell them, you know what, I could have memorized a lot more. I've wasted a lot of time. I've wasted a lot of time when I could have been putting more Scripture to memory. And, and that time is, is lost. I can't go get it back. It's gone. I wasted it. And I think that if we were told to set everything in order, we'd look back and see a lot of things we neglected and we'd have a lot of regret. And we'd try to make those corrections that we could and get things right. Number two, if we were told to set everything in order, folks, we'd study. We'd be good students of the Bible. This word would not be just dry reading. I've heard people say how dry the Bible is. Well, I try to read it and I just can't focus. You know, it's just, uh, I don't know, it just, I can't get interested. It just, it just loses me. But I'm going to tell you what, if we didn't have long to live, this would probably be a very interesting book. And I doubt we could get it read enough. 2 Timothy 2 and 15, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We would study the Bible. The third thing I believe we would do if we were told to set everything in order, we would pray. And God would hear a lot of strange voices, don't you think? What do I mean by that? Voices He hadn't heard in a while. Voices that hadn't been speaking to Him. All of a sudden, people would be praying to Him. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 17 to pray without ceasing. And uh, there are a lot of people that say, well, I, I would pray, but I just don't know how to pray. I don't know how to pray. And... Uh, I'm going to tell you something. If our life was running very short on time, we could pray. Because God's not interested in fancy speeches from us. I love a good prayer. I love a well-worded, sin sincere prayer in an assembly like this. But I can tell you God's not interested in our great public speaking. We're not going to impress God with our vocabulary. He's got a better one than us. We're just not going to impress Him. And when you're really earnest with God, you don't have to use fancy words. I think oftentimes of the prayer that Peter made when Jesus came walking on the Sea of Galilee and the disciples were in the ship and 
they recognized Jesus. And Peter, you know, he's always impulsive out of all the twelve. He said, Lord, if it's you, bid me come to you on the water. Jesus said, come ahead. So Peter stepped overboard, started walking on the surface of the sea. But he got his eyes off Jesus and on the winds and waves, and he began to sink. What did he do as he sank? He prayed, but what did he pray? As he was sinking, did he say, O thou most august Son of the Divine Father, I beseech thee to listen to me as I beseech thee and petition thee in prayer. And then he didn't have time for that, did he? Lord, save me! That's what he said. <laughs> and it was effective. <laughs> because it doesn't take a fancy speech when we need God. He's not going to be impressed with that. He wants a sincere heart. And I'm telling you, if we were told to set everything in order, we would pray. We would pray like Hezekiah did in her opening scripture when he turned his face to the wall and wept and prayed. We would pray like people do sometimes before they go in for surgery. You remember how they want prayer. They need prayer right then or when they're having problems in their life. We would pray like people do in tornadoes. Talk to some of the people around Moore, Oklahoma, and Oklahoma City area on those tornadoes. And you see them even on interviews in the news and on the Weather Channel. They'll talk about how they prayed down there, how, how we just kept praying. And they can even tell you, in some cases, what they prayed. When, uh, when we really have to, we can pray. And we wouldn't have an excuse, well, I just don't know how to. We'd know how to pray. Number four, if we were told to set everything in order, people would become Christians. They wouldn't be like Agrippa in Acts 26, 28, when Agrippa said to Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. They would be persuaded. And I'll tell you, a lot of this misunderstanding on Mark 16, 16, Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. That's not hard to understand. That says, I've got to believe and be baptized to be saved. That's what the verse teaches. And if we were shortly to die, soon to die, we could understand that passage. I was traveling home one time uh, just a year, well, two or three years ago from New Mexico. Uh, I got a call about my brother-in-law. He was in the hospital here at Springdale. He wanted to see me. And Springdale was on my way home, and uh, so I didn't go home. I stopped at the hospital to see him. Actually, he was in Fayetteville. Take that back. And uh, he wanted to talk to me about his salvation. You see, he had terminal cancer, and he had, he had just a very short time to live. I talked to him. That was on uh, Monday. We talked to the hospital, and we set it up, and we baptized him on Tuesday. Now, he'd heard me preach on baptism. He'd heard these sermons. He'd heard me use Mark 16, 16. But you see, when his life got short, he understood the passage better. He knew he needed to do that. We baptized him on that Tuesday. I dropped by on Thursday to see him again. He was so weak that day he could not have been baptized. And he waited another day or two. He couldn't, even, he couldn't have obeyed the Lord. He, he did not have the strength. By Saturday he was dead. We baptized him on Tuesday. He died on Saturday. That's how close he came. But he understood Mark 16, 16 quite well. 
He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Number five, if you and I were told to set everything in order that we would soon die, we would get right with brothers and sisters in Christ. We would get right with our enemies as best we could and treat them right. In Matthew 5 and verse 23 and 24, Jesus said, Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, go thy way, first be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. The Lord said, If you've got a brother and you've offended him, don't even bother worshiping. If you're bringing a gift to the altar and you remember that you've got a problem with somebody, you leave your gift right there. Don't bother to offer it. Go your way and get reconciled with that brother and then come back and offer your gift. I would say that's true of communion and such things. If we've got people we've wronged, we ought to take care of it and then come and offer things to God. And if we had but a short time to live, we'd try to get right with people. Even enemies. I, I sometimes see brethren treat each other worse than Jesus said we're to treat an enemy. Let's read about enemies. Matthew 5, verse 44, 45. Here's how we're to treat our enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. Jesus didn't just say, don't hate your enemy. He said, love your enemy. He's talking positive things. Love that enemy. Oh, it's not just that uh, we shouldn't curse an enemy. He says, bless them. See, He's not telling you and I, don't curse anybody. He's telling us, bless them. Do positive things, you see. Do good to them that hate you. He didn't say don't do any harm to somebody that hates you. He said do them good. That's positive, see. He said pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. Love your enemies. Do good to them. See that? Do good to them. Bless them. Pray for them. And yet we'll have brethren sometimes that just cross with each other and they won't even speak. Isn't that a shame? We're, to, we're not even to treat an enemy that way. And if we had but a short time to live, we'd try to get right with people. We could forget and forgive where people have wronged us and get over these grudges and not harbor them. Hebrews 12, verse 14 and 15 the Bible says, Follow peace with all men, and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord, looking diligently lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. He talks about a root of bitterness. I drew a little heart out here on a paper I want you to look at. And right in the middle of this heart I put a little root, a little root of bitterness. Let that represent the heart of man, and there's that little bit, of, little bit of bitterness in the heart against somebody. You know what happens when we leave these little roots of bitterness in our heart? They grow. They grow and they spread. Before long, that root 
that root just gets really big and just starts taking over the heart. And that old plant of bitterness and hatred springs up. And before long, our heart's just crowded and full of bitterness. We've all seen bitter people. They're miserable people. People that get bitter at other folks think that they're doing those folks bad. What they're doing is hurting their own self. Because when we're bitter like this and we have a heart of bitterness, there's not room for the things of, of God. There's not room, for example, for the fruit of the Spirit. We're told in Galatians 5, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. But when you've got a heart full of bitterness, you can't have these fruits. The fruit of the Spirit will not fill a heart or abide in a heart that's got bitterness in it. How many people that are bitter are full of love? You see the love of God in their heart? How many people when they're bitter have joy? They're miserable people, aren't they? They're miserable and they make you miserable because there's nothing worse than somebody that's negative and is always talking about somebody else and mad at them. Peace, are bitter people full of peace? They have no peace. Not themselves and they do not ensue and seek peace with others. They're not long-suffering. They're not gentle in such things. The fruit of the Spirit cannot dwell in a heart that's full of bitterness. And so when we have bitterness in our heart, we need to get it out of there. If you're at odds with somebody, get it corrected. Some people will not let you. That's okay. If they won't let you, then the monkey's on them. But you and I have got to try and do our best not to be bitter. Finally, number six, if we were told to set our house in order, we would attend church every time the doors were open. We'd come to church. If the church met Wednesday night, we'd be there Wednesday night. Or Sunday evening, we'd be there Sunday evening. I would hate to be alive on, uh, on Wednesday and the church was meeting. And uh, here I had a very short time to live, I think I'd be in church on that Wednesday. What if Jesus came and I had an opportunity to go and I wouldn't? What if death came and I had an opportunity to be there but I wouldn't do it? Hebrews 10 and 25, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as the matter of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. If uh, the Lord said set everything in order, we'd go to church. We'd love to be in the assemblies. We should anyway, shouldn't we? In fact, we ought to live each day, folks, like it could be the last day of our life. Because one day it will be. Because we don't have a promise of tomorrow. Proverbs 27 and 1, the Bible says, Boast not thyself of tomorrow. For thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. In James 4, verse 13 and 14, James says, Go to now, ye that say today or tomorrow, we will enter into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. I wish I could get you young people that are here today to understand how quickly your life is really going to pass you by. 
And I know you can't see that right now. I know, I know you read these scriptures. And I know the Bible talks about life being a vapor uh, that lasts for a short time. <clears throat> but I'm going to assure you, you're going to be 50, 60, 70 years old before you can turn around. And when you are, you're going to look back and wonder where it went. If you live long enough, you're going to look around. You've been out of high school 50 years. And you're going to wonder where in the world did 50 years go. That's exactly what's going to happen. I couldn't see it when I was younger either. But life is short. And when you get up around my age, you'll begin to realize just how short it is. If you think of somebody like me, let's think of how quickly 20 years go by. 10 years goes by. 10 more years, I'll be 80. 20 years, I'd be 90. How quick does that go by? My point is, I'm out of here pretty soon. I know it. And as I look back on my life, it's just been a really short thing. It's been just like a vapor. Seemed like yesterday I was a teenager. I was in high school. Just, it just goes so fast. If today was the last day of your life, or if you had a short time to live, is there anything you need to do? You need to get right with God in some way. Is there some way we can help you? We hope you enjoyed this teaching from God's Word. To receive new sermons each week, subscribe on Google Play Music, iTunes, Spotify, and like us on Facebook. Thanks for listening, and God bless.